Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh, and I'm here with Sarah Jane Bentley, and we are discussing Othello Act 4. Sarah Jane, how is life over in England? It's all right, thank you, Tim. Yeah, I'm back at work, and it's been three days of term, and I'm already pretty knackered. (laughs) (laughs) Can you do a quick translation for us? The word knackered. How does that translate into American English? I am dead beat. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. What's the the saying? I think it's a, I've I've heard it attributed to several people. I think it's Chesterton. Um, Something about the United States and England being divided by a common language. (laughs) That's good. Do you know that quote? Yeah, I think it's Chesterton. So I have, I am not teaching this year, but I was pulled in um, to kind of do a favor for a friend to help teach middle school, um, medieval history and modern history. So I'm back in the classroom with a bunch of seventh and eighth graders. And I don't know that I'm knackered the way that you are, but I'm certainly feeling my, um, how ill-prepared I am to teach seventh and eighth graders medieval history that's quite a, a tall order isn't it going in cold for that is is probably quite um yeah tricky so yeah it's quite a broad subject too i mean it's a really broad subject can i just do a really quick a story from the classroom and i have to remember yeah. like i have to remember like we all do as teachers like you have to first start with figuring out where the students are and what they know. So I'm teaching this school starts modern history with the Renaissance and reformation. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the reformation and inevitably we talk about Martin Luther as part of the reformation, of course. And so I'm talking about Martin Luther and at some point I just had this sort of intuition 
that I needed to mention Martin Luther King Jr. and what his relationship to Martin Luther was. And so I say, so everybody, Martin Luther King Jr., he took his name, got his name from his father because his father so admired Martin Luther. And I saw several of the students kind of their eyes opened up and they said, oh, we thought we were talking about Martin Luther King Jr. the whole time. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I mean, this was not like we just, we had been talking about Martin Luther living in the 1500s for like a good 20 minutes. And I'm really glad that I checked in with them about Martin Luther King Jr. and not being the same as Martin Luther because many of them, and they're only in seventh and eighth grade, I get it. But I was still a little bit shocked. I was like, you guys, when did Martin Luther King Jr. live? When did Martin Luther live? Anyway, that was my kind of scary moment from the classroom this week. That's the thing with younger children, isn't it? That they just, I mean, yesterday was a very long time ago. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, Tim, I can see you're um, sipping coffee there. I look like an interesting mug you just picked up. Yeah, so for um, listeners, we're on a video chat on Zoom, and I'm sipping from a mug that I think was a gift from Close Reads Friends, and it's a Shakespeare insult mug, Sarah Jane. So it's it's just covered with insults. It's really wonderful, and it happens to be my favorite mug I just love the mug for a variety of reasons. The chief one being that it's, it's covered with insults. Would you like to hear a couple of Shakespeare insults? And Tell you, me your favorite one, yeah. Okay. Okay, my favorite one. Um, <laughs> the veriest varlet that ever chewed with a tooth. <laughs> the, veriest, the veriest varlet that ever chewed with a tooth. And one more, just for fun, a bolting hutch of beastliness. That's good. A bolting hutch of beastliness. My favourite one is from Richard III, where he's cursed by, I think it's old Margaret, and she says that he's a poisonous bunch-backed toad. Oh, I know that one. That's a great one. I like that one. (laughs) That's a great one. Okay, Sarah Jane, we are... In the second to last act of Othello, act four, and our very claustrophobic play is growing more claustrophobic by the line. Any kind of first impressions that you want to share about this act? Okay, maybe actually let's do this. I, I think it's helpful to kind of remind everybody of where we are in the play and we can, we can do that yeah. together. Where did we leave Othello, Iago, and Desdemona, Cassio? at the end of act three, where were we? I think the end of act three was, they were really um, spending a lot of time thinking and talking about jealousy. Okay. That was the, the main concern there. And um, so the big thing that's happened is that Othello has overseen, he, he, remember he was hiding in the corner and, and he saw Iago talking to Cassio and Cassio pulls out handkerchief. And it's Othello's handkerchief. And that was um, like a, a plot clinching moment. Yeah. Where Othello can see something, he gets ocular proof, but of course what he's looking at isn't true. Right. 
What else? Othello is um, pretty convinced that Desdemona is guilty. He doesn't really want her to be, but he seems to pretty much believed everything Iago said. And, oh, yeah, do you remember Iago and Othello made that terrible vow? Yeah. They, they knelt down and Othello swore by the marble heavens. Yeah. And Iago swore by the ever-burning lights above. And so they're both committed now to revenge. They're, yeah. They're sworn to it. They're forsworn. And so when we get to Act 4... Othello and Iago, I mean, in some ways, there's, Iago is still providing Othello with proof that Desdemona has been unfaithful. I think in part because we see glimpses that Othello doesn't really want to believe that she's been unfaithful and has doubts that she's been unfaithful. At least it seems that way to me. There are just like little glimmers within some of his speeches that make me think Othello... Othello believes Desdemona. He wants her to be, to have been faithful. Um, yeah. So it seems like Iago is still on the path to convincing. He can't quite let down his guard. The task is not completed yet. That's right. And so in Maybe. Act Four, he, he's still, there's still some rhetorical gambits going on between Iago and Othello. Maybe as well. It's something to do with the fact that Othello likes to judge things by looking at them. And so the problem Othello's having at the moment is that what he sees doesn't quite match up with what he believes. And what we're going to see in Act 4 is that rather than believing what his eyes are showing him, he decides to follow what Iago has predisposed him to believe. Yeah. Mm. Which was a bad decision. It's a very bad, bad decision. It's a very bad decision. Well, if we think back to the end of Act One, um, Iago gives us this picture of of him coming up with a plot, and he talks mm-hmm. about engendering a monster that hell and night must bring to the world's light. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this monstrous birth going on at mm-hmm. the very beginning of the play that Iago conceives of. And I think that in Act 4, we actually see that monster coming to life in Othello. And Othello's transformed from this beautiful, noble creature to um, a kind of an ugly monster whose speech is disjointed. And at one point, he even has a fit on the ground. What? So... (laughs) I was confused by the fit, Sarah Jane. I, I'm not confused that epileptic fits are a reality. I was more confused by um, what is the su- what it, what is the purpose of it within the play? I, I'm just thinking from Shakespeare's point of view. Doesn't he have everything that he needs to make this play as riveting and as terrifying as it can be? Am I missing something about the seizure that? that Othello has on the stage? No, I don't think you're missing anything. I think, I think that it might be because Othello is so, um, he's so impenetrable in some ways. Lodovico says that he is like a a piece of solid virtue. Mm. So perhaps, perhaps Shakespeare needed to give him a bit more vulnerability. And here, 
he actually has a physical vulnerability, which is something we've never seen from Othello before. He went out to fight at the age of seven. He was a child soldier. From there, he was sold into slavery. He is absolutely, well, in England, I'd say he's absolutely nails. He's really tough. Um, So maybe this is a way of, of Shakespeare giving him a kind of vulnerability that is like a new and surprising aspect to his character. Right, right. And he has this, it's, it's remarkable how it's staged. It's just he and Iago alone on the stage when it happens. And I just think about, that must be, a, it must be terrifying as an audience to see this character that you have so esteemed for his kind of manly virtues and his battle-hardened abilities to suddenly break down into a fit where his body is... is <laughs> not his own in a lot of ways. He, is, he completely loses mastery over himself. And it, right. it must be shocking. Yeah, I remember seeing this in the National Theatre version with Adrian Lester. And the whole play is set in um, a modern day, like a 21st century army camp in Cyprus, mm. where there is actually a British army, army camp. And they're all wearing modern day military fatigues. And this fit that Othello has happens in the in the bathroom so he's underneath the urinals really so it's almost like he's been brought so low he's on yeah. the underneath the urinals and he's so vulnerable and the only person there standing over him hates hates yeah him. yeah and it, it evoked huge pity from me uh, that scene because he was in his military uniform with his boots on and yet he was so weak and vulnerable I can see that. That's a that's a stunning bit of stagecraft. Like the little the director in me is like really wish that I had seen that. What a remarkable image, mm. Sarah Jane. What what is um what is Iago's end game here? And I, obviously, the obvious answer is um, we find out in this act that he has very spe- a very specific way that he hopes Othello will kill Desdemona. And we can talk about that in a moment. But what is, what does he ultimately want? He wants revenge, but when he gets it, what then for Iago? Mm. Does he think he and Othello are going to be buddies? He's going to kind of like have eliminated Cassio from being this, you know, suitor for this post that he wanted? Is everything going to return to normal? Or is Iago not even really thinking that far ahead? Is he just thinking, I'm getting revenge. That's the only thing that I'm really concerned about at this moment. The revenge, yeah, the revenge was there in Act 1, wasn't it? I think Othello, I think Iago, he doesn't have... Uh, an end goal, a kind of telos or a picture of how the world should be when his little plot is played out. Yeah. All he envisages is chaos and he's totally indifferent to how it comes about. He doesn't really care. He just hates Othello and he, he could stop right now. He's already got Cassio's promotion. At the end of Act 3, Scene 4, Othello said to him, now art thou my lieutenant. So in terms of getting even with Cassio, he's done that. The other thing uh, that's motivating him, I suppose, is his pride has been wounded because he thinks he's maybe been cuckolded by uh-huh. Amelia. Uh-huh. Um, 
But as by to- the way, by the way, sorry to interrupt you. That word cuckold that gets used used a lot in Shakespeare and also in this play. I think it might be fun for our audience to know where that comes from. So cuckold, the, the, the kind of like functional meaning of the word in Shakespeare is someone who's been cuckolded is a husband whose wife has cheated on him, but it comes from a bird, a cuckold bird that if I remember this correctly, um, a bird will lay, a female bird would lay its eggs and another male bird who's kind of like not the biological father would come and sit on that nest with... Oh, the cuckoo. Yeah. Well, I've heard it called the cuckold. I've heard it called the cuckoo. But that's the kind of like, that's where that verb cuckolded originated from. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got... Use up somebody else's nest. Yeah. Yeah. It also goes hand in hand with the image of um, a man having horns on his head. Oh. They had this thing called a cuckold's cap. And it was a big joke. If your wife had cheated on you and everybody knew in the town, you had to wear this hat with horns on it and everyone would laugh at you. And Othello says in the previous act, a horned man's a monster and a beast. There's, again, this imagery of monstrousness. In some ways, Othello thinks he's already been transformed into a by Desdemona's behavior. But of course, she hasn't cheated on him. Right, right. Um, so Iago's end goal, I mean, I, I appreciate what you said. It's not, he doesn't have kind of like a restored order vision of the world. He, no. He's out to create chaos. That's exactly right. I, I don't think... Yeah, to, to suggest that Yago is trying to work towards the restoration of norms, of laws, of normality, doesn't go hand in hand with the kind of chaotic agent that Yago is. I, I don't think he cares what happens. I think he's indifferent. He just wants to wreak havoc. He wants the satisfaction of getting what he wants and what happens after that. Yeah, it's kind of not his concern, which I think is so interesting when you compare that kind of agenda with this repeating pattern in so many of Shakespeare's tragedies that when the tragedy happens, order of some form is kind of on the heels of that tragedy. So we've talked a lot about Macbeth and made comparisons between Othello and Macbeth. After Macbeth is killed the invading army that seeks to kind of seeks to recoup the kingdom is inside the castle and they're ready to put things right again. And that happens over and over when a despotic king comes into power in Shakespeare's plays and is put down. Oftentimes there's an invading army that brings order and restores order. And I think probably more often, um, there's a domestic army, the kind of like rightful heirs of the throne or the kind of courageous soldiers of virtue. They're there to restore the proper order of the kingdom. But this is, this is like so many, like we've mentioned so many times, this is an inverse, kind of an upside downing of that restorative order from Othello. That's right. Excuse me, from Iago. Iago is trying Iago. to kind of undo the proper order of everything. Yeah, that's right. There's a hope in this scene 
that order might be restored when Othello gets the letter from Lodovico saying, come back to Venice. You're done. Yeah. Um, but of course he doesn't go because he's sworn himself to this quest, which is that he must kill Desdemona. And so things get worse rather than better. That's right. I'm, I'm really puzzled by the ending as, and, and what will what kind of order will be restored because Iago, well, we don't see him being punished for his evil deeds on the stage. Yeah. Um, so he's not brought to justice. Um, and that's a really interesting yeah. open end, but perhaps we'll talk about that more when we look at act five next time. So we should tell our, our audience members um, what we typically do, and I'm sure we'll do it for this one, is after the conclusion of Act 5, then we, Sarah Jane and I, will get together again, and we will take questions and answers about the play. And Sarah Jane, if you've not, you've not done that with us before, I will tell you as a host, it's both really fun and also it's a little bit scary because like our our listeners are very very capable they're very very capable readers and so they ask questions and I, we get stumped a lot so i shouldn't I'm be really looking forward to that uh, yeah you have astute listeners i obviously haven't been part of a question and answer session but i have listened to them on your other podcasts and, uh, I, I sometimes wonder if they take a kind of perverse joy in stumping us on the air they, they probably i would i might take that joy i wonder if they do also i think if the listeners could see you they would um they would immediately be filled with joy and compassion because they'd see that you are you are a, a kind of fully born and bred close reads patron. You are wearing the merchandise t-shirt. Yes. You've got the mug somewhere. They would have sympathy on me. And they'd have sympathy and they'd, yeah, they'd say. And maybe, and maybe they would even sign up to be like a Patreon patron. I would hope so. I, yeah. I, have you, have you looked at that at all yet? I had an email recently. Very little, very little. I see it every once in a while. I know that, I mean, this podcast and the whole suite of podcasts from Circe are supported by Patreon donors. And this is going to turn into a plug now, Sarah Jane. Like you can give from, I think, $2 a month, I think up to $20 a month or something like that. And these donations, however large or small, kind of help not just fund the production of these podcasts, but they also help fund all the work that Circe's doing. And I know that you and I are big supporters of Circe, independent of us doing the podcast as part of their their network. I just really want to see Circe thrive um, because I love the kind of work that it's doing in the world, supporting Christian classical education. And like, yeah, Patreon is one way that you can kind of, that listeners can support that. It's so amazing. Um, clearly loads of stuff has been going on in the Circe office where, all of the conference audio um, from the last, it must be 18 years or something, is online now. And you can, you can listen to all of it if you subscribe. And for me, living in the UK, that is incredible. Um, and I wouldn't even know about Cersei if it wasn't for the podcasts and things. So it, it's just an incredible resource. And it's so, it's so cheap. I... I I would really recommend getting 
getting a subscription. You you are a teacher in England. You heard about and eventually attended a Circe conference, a national conference, and you first heard about it through one of the podcasts. Is that right? Yeah. So I found out about Circe because um, a minister came to preach at our church who was really involved in the classical education movement in the States. And there are quite a few parents who homeschool at our church. And I'm really interested in, in homeschooling and classical education and wanted to know more about it. So I asked him and he said, well, why don't you look up this organization called Circe? So I did. And then I, I started listening to various podcasts and audio recordings from, from conferences, I think. Yeah. And uh, it just totally refreshed me. Huh. <laughs> made me fall in love with the subject again and yeah and so then eventually this year I was able to go to Kentucky and actually meet all the people who's watching. yeah <laughs> yeah how fun yeah welcome to the team and we should probably like return sorry this really did not I did not intend it to be <laughs> as much of a plug as it ended up being um a fellow act for okay when off the air Sarah Jane we mentioned that Shakespeare might be kind of toying with this idea that there's a relationship between beauty and truth, truth and beauty. There's the famous poem. Um, is it Keats? What's the line? Ode, Ode on a Grecian urn. Yeah. Truth is beauty. Beauty, truth. This is all you need and need to know on earth. Something like that. Um. Yeah. Does this play support Keats's assertion that beauty is truth and truth is beauty or is there a there's is there a break happening here in this play about how about people seeing beauty and recognizing truth what do you think Hmm. this is a really interesting massive question um so I was interested in does our perception or our ability to perceive beauty lead us to the truth Mm. um it's kind of a i suppose in a way a theology of aesthetics and it's something that you were talking about in your close reads podcasts on bright head revisited um so then i thought that's a really interesting idea does it work in the play can beauty lead othello to the truth and it's this play i don't know shakespeare seems to be saying no it can't that our vision is colored by what we believe in, first of all. And then I was um, reminded of Augustine's pithy statement, credo ut intelligam. Mm-hmm. I believe in order that I might understand. And the problem that Othello has is he believes the wrong thing. And so he misunderstands all the signals his senses are giving him. So he, he sees that Desdemona is beautiful and, but in his mind, he believes that she's untrue and he can't reconcile these things. Mm-hmm. And he gets stuck in this paradox. So for me, I found it really, um, really sad that he loses his ability to reason. So he says at one point, um, I'll have the ocular proof. Yaga, you're saying all this stuff, but unless you can show me that this is true and I can see it with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe you. So then he sees the handkerchief. But of course, that, vision of the handkerchief that he has has been it's it's all a show it's been set yeah, up by yeah 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 the whole context has already been it's all been framed by iago yeah. 
before he sees anything. And then when he sees it within that frame, its meaning is pre-shaped for him. Exactly. So then the thing that really bothered me was that later on, (laughs) Othello, he then says um, that Desdemona, he's seen her kneeling and praying. And he says, of course, this proves that she's a whore because she's an actress and she's lying. And you think, well, now you can't both trust your sight and mistrust it. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. either you believe what your eyes are telling you or you don't. You can't see the handkerchief and believe that she's disloyal and then see her praying and believe that she's disloyal. It doesn't make any sense. But this mm-hmm. seems to be how Iago has corrupted Othello's mind and has corrupted Othello's ability to reason. But um, you were you were pretty interested in the idea of reason, I think. Yeah, I am. I'm so historic. I'm not going to talk about historically speaking. I just ask myself a question over and over when I read Shakespeare. Does he think that human beings are rational agents, or does he think that we do what we want to do because of motives that are not really guided by? They're not really guided by reason that we seem to be much more driven by, by desire. And by desire, I don't mean just sort of like hedonistic impulses, but I mean desire for the things that human beings crave. In, in, in Romeo and Juliet, it is the romantic affection of the other, Romeo for Juliet, Juliet for Romeo. And they know, reasonably speaking, they know that their romance is a completely unreasonable idea, right? They come from these warring families. Nothing is going to go well. They surely know that. And I see that kind of pattern of characters being driven chiefly by desire and secondarily by reason all throughout Shakespeare. So in this instance, it seems like Othello's, at first, he is mad with desire for Desdemona. This this root of jealousy gets planted within him. And then he begins to kind of use his reason to justify his vision that she has been unfaithful. So, I mean, there's even this kind of like debate that's happened for like centuries now. And you can kind of see the two ends of it within Christianity. Catholics on the one side, like Thomas Aquinas, put a very, very high view of reason on the table. Protestants tend to be a little bit more skeptical of the powers of reason. Not that they don't believe in reason, they surely do. Um, but I think they would, Protestants would kind of hearken back to Augustine and say that kind of like the desire is the thing that chiefly shapes us and reason comes along behind to shape that desire. Now this opens a big question of like, well, are our desires reasonable or unreasonable? And I think that's a big question to tackle, but it seems to me here in this play that Othello and Iago especially are driven by this desire. Iago for revenge, Othello I think at root, it's to kind of like justify his own honor or defend his own honor 
to not be cuckolded by Desdemona. And that's driving everything, not a reasonable assembly of the facts. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Uh, the Enlightenment hasn't happened yet. Right. Which is a great thing. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think there's a third thing that we need to bring in. So it's not the way I conceive it, but maybe it's not that it's desire and reason, but faith and reason. Mm. And the will is, is another part of it. Um, so, yeah, what's the fellow struggling with? Can his... Can his reason lead him to the truth? And um, a Thomist reading would say that yes, it can. That he should be able to, he should be able to perceive with his reason um, the way forward and kind of ascend a staircase to a, an upper room where there's a, a fragile truth that he can grasp hold of. But what was shown here is that that's that's not that's not working for him mm -mm. um as we said he's he's kind of he's founded his reason on a, a wrong belief and so he mm -hmm. can't reason rightly and um he knows that his eyes deceive him and he admits that his eyes deceive him and yet in one way he's trying to reason on the basis of his senses yeah i see that the handkerchief uh, is in Cassio's hand and now it's in Bianca's hand and that means that Desdemona's given it to him. Right. Um, and on the other hand, he sees Desdemona kneeling and praying and says, this can't be true. So, I, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting in Shakespeare we get the same debate going on in Hamlet. Do you know the bit where... Oh, Hamlet, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ophelia and Hamlet um, have an altercation. And he says, are you honest? Are you fair? Then your honesty should admit no discourse to your beauty. And the, the problem is, of course, with both of these women, Ophelia and Desdemona, their honesty and their beauty are perfectly in accord. Uh -huh. They haven't uh -huh. done anything wrong. Yeah. It's the perception of Hamlet and the perception of Othello that divorces their beauty from their truth. Yeah, that line, your honesty should admit no discourse to your beauty, that line from Hamlet to Ophelia puts those two at odds with each other. It, 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 in the remainder of that discourse, Hamlet seems to say to Ophelia, because you're beautiful, um, you're in grave danger yeah. because it, it, your beauty is, is necessarily going to deceive you. Yeah. He says the power of beauty will sooner transform honesty from what it is to a mm -hmm. mm -hmm. of Honesty and translate beauty into his likeness. Hmm. It's, it's kind of chilling. It's chilling. It's chilling coming from Hamlet. It makes, I think it makes a little bit more sense coming from Othello because he's, he's in the process of being deceived by Iago. It's kind of like Hamlet um, 
I think at the beginning, that's relatively early in the play. And we kind of have hopes that he should know better. But at this point, when Iago sees this kind of rivalry between beauty and truth, he's already been, he's already in a deeply anxious state about the faithfulness of his wife. And we can understand why he's, yeah. he sees that rivalry. The problem is not that there is a discord between truth and beauty. It's that, um, as Hamlet says, my wit's diseased. Uh-huh. Iago, Othello and Hamlet are all wrong. Their wives, their girlfriends are not unfaithful. <laughs> uh-huh, right. So there is perfect harmony between beauty and truth in all those examples that Shakespeare gives us. The problem is they believe the wrong things. Yeah. And because they believe the wrong thing, they can't then reason their way to the truth. They end yeah. up coming up with the wrong idea. That's how I've understood it. And, you know, I'm happy to be wrong about that because, you know, that's maybe I've oversimplified things a bit, but. I don't think so. We, we talked either last week or the week before about, um, actually, let me, let me change the way that I kind of approach that. I, Several years ago, I wrote, I read a description in a um, kind of a theater anthology about how different stages in different eras kind of say something about the era that they live in. So um, the Greek theater, which we mentioned last week, the Greek theater is not just a venue for entertainment, but the trappings of the stage say that the business of the stage is political and cultural. It's not just amusement and entertainment. Mm. So for the example of that would be the chorus on the Greek stage most often is a voice of history. And it's a voice of accumulated wisdom. It's the voice of the elders of the city-state. Yeah. I think this introduction that I read describes Shakespeare's play. And Shakespeare's play, Shakespeare's stage, in essence, kind of modeled or mimicked the three stages of life. So there's the stage, which is the everyday life that you and I inhabit. Below the stage, accessible through a trap door, is the cellarage. The cellarage kind of doubles as a hell oftentimes. We hear Hamlet's father speak to him from the cellarage, and it seems to be that he's speaking to us from hell, at least temporarily. Painted behind the main stage is a kind of geometrical um, tapestry slash painting that kind of represents the orderliness of both the current like terrestrial plane and how it mimics in some way the heavens. So the heavens and the earth are intended to feel like they are in kind of some sort of harmonious order. When things are working well, they're supposed to be in some sort of harmonious order. And so when we hear these characters like Othello seeing that there's a disharmony between beauty and truth, it's juxtaposed by the actual trappings of the stage, which show a harmony. Yeah. And I think it's hard for a contemporary audience to kind of recognize how jarring it would feel. How do I say it? I need to say it the right way. Our stages are bare. They're bare. When, when somebody is not on them, they have electrical equipment and they have lighting equipment. 
all they have until they're furnished for the particular period that the play is being um, acted within. But it's not so for these other periods of theater because they had a kind of vision, a, 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 let's call it a more stable, harmonious vision of the relationship between this world and the next world. So when Othello sees a disjoint between beauty and truth, when Hamlet sees a disjoint or a rivalry between beauty and truth, the stage says the opposite. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's really well illustrated. Um, and there are lots more examples in the play of Shakespeare reaffirming that truth and that structure and that form where Othello begins the play as a beautiful, noble character. When he believes Iago's lie, he is transformed into a monster and a beast to the point that he's writhing around on the floor and cannot speak in four sentences anymore. Yeah. Um, so there's... And in the production that you saw, and it's even underneath a urinal. Under a latrine. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And there you see that lies go hand in hand with ugliness. Um, and so... I think that there, you're right, there's a kind of clarity here that perhaps we miss when we're only reading it and we don't see it on stage. Yeah. Um, because the other thing that I noticed in that production with Adrian Lester that I saw is that as the play goes on, Othello's uniform becomes more and more disheveled. And really? In front of our eyes. Really? He loses his composure, his decorum. Yeah. How fitting. Yeah. He says at one point, I look, I look grim as hell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Says that. Mm. Um, Sarah Jane, in the middle of act four, in the midst of his fury, Othello strikes Desdemona. Well, that's an ugly thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Really shocked at that point. Um, yeah. In the production that you saw, did you, did you, I mean, you knew Othello, so you probably in the back of your head knew it was coming. Did you remember that it was going to happen at that moment? Do you know, now that you mentioned that, that isn't part of the production that springs to mind. I can't picture how huh. that's staged. Um, but when I read it in the text recently, I think the thing that really hit home as to how inappropriate this is, is Lodovico's reaction. That this is something Othello's done in public, uh, in front of Lodovico, who is one of the Duke's representative from Venice. Right. And um, what's really interesting, going back to our discussion about beauty and truth, Lodovico doesn't um, believe his eyes. He believes in the solid virtue of Othello. and says, can this yeah. Othello, the man of solid virtue? Yeah. I believe in who Othello is and this thing that I've seen him do, which is inconsistent with who he really is, is, is not who he is. And, and so Lodovico notes that Othello is being out of character. And it's the same with Desdemona. She doesn't believe that Othello is monstrous. She still uh -huh. believes in the Othello um, who she believed in and loved in the first act and says that something has, has puddled the clarity of his mind. And that there's something upsetting him that's making him behave in a way that is untrue to who he really is. So, and they're 100% right. They're right, yeah. So the play keeps affirming this harmony between beauty and truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do we lose all sympathy for Othello after he strikes her? 
can we like regain a sense of sympathy for her, for him? I think so. I mean, yeah. did you? I mean, every t- he cries three times in this play yeah. on the stage. And I think that not only adds to our sympathy for him, but also to his paradoxically to his strength. Because this Othello is not just your average guy. Othello has seen and heard all kinds of tortures and dangerous things, and he's come through them all. Yeah. Um, so for him to break down and weep because of this torment that Yaga's put him through shows the extent of his suffering. And um, I can only feel compassion and pity for him. I've compared him before, I think, to Job. That's the kind of level yeah. of suffering yeah. that the fellow is going through that Shakespeare puts on him. And even after he strikes Desdemona, Desdemona finds ways to understand she does not cease to have sympathy for him. She finds she's searching for some sort of an answer. Why is he acting this way? And even Amelia is, is searching. She's more cynical, certainly than Desdemona, but she's searching for ways. Isn't she to understand what's happened with Othello? That's it. And the, the two women um, come up with their own explanations and, and neither of them are bad. Desmona makes the same mistake again. She says, it must be some public issue that's upsetting Othello. It must be something in the letter that's come from Venice. So she gets it wrong again in the same way that she did with Cassia, where she thought that was personal when actually it was public. Amelia says, um, the Moors abused by some villainous knave. And Amelia seems to have figured out that somebody's poisoning Othello's ear. And she goes on to describe her treacherous husband. She, she actually, she doesn't even seem to know that she's talking about Iago, but she calls him an eternal villain, some busy and insinuating rogue, some cogging, cousining slave, um, and realizes that somebody is twisting Othello. And uh-huh. it's Amelia in Act 5 who figures it out and, uh-huh. and realizes it's been Iago the whole time. But what we- women blame Othello as as being kind of the the author or the orchestrator of this. They realize he's a good man who's turned bad. What do we think of Amelia? Oh, I have some thoughts on Amelia. <laughs> I, <laughs> I bet do. you do. <laughs> Amelia. So what do you think of this idea? She has been treated appallingly by Iago throughout the play. And if Iago is going to be true to his Machiavellian principles, he's made a big mistake with Amelia because he, she is a grieved victim of one of his accusations. He's accused her of being unfaithful. But he hasn't been able to confirm that, and neither has he divorced her or completely crushed her. So she's left with this wrangling sense of injustice. And at the end of the play, she is the one who comes back and asserts herself over him and speaks the truth and brings him into the light. So yeah. Amelia, really interesting. Um, I mean, what did you think of her conversation with Desdemona where they talk about what, I, what a wife should be? I love it. It, it, it. I love it. And it's, it's sort of, it's these two kind of rival views. Desdemona speaking from this place of genuine innocence and trust 
and maybe a little bit of naivete. Mm -hmm. And Amelia, on the other hand, speaking from a place of (laughs) experience, a little bit of cynicism. And part of me wants Desdemona to be a little bit more like Amelia, part of me wants Amelia to be a little bit more like Desdemona, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Desdemona's pure virtue. I won't have anything said again. (laughs) She's she's pure virtue. Yeah. Um, But but honestly, honestly, isn't she... uh, I I don't want to cast blame on her because I love Desdemona. But there's part of me that wants her to listen she mistakes what's going on. She doesn't understand what's going on. And I want her to understand what's going on. And would that, does, would that necessarily mean a cost to her virtue? I don't think so. Well, I think the issue with Desmona is an excess of virtue, that Yago has pushed her too far. So she has a virtue of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And because of this virtuous loyalty she swears an oath to Cassio that she will um honor his suit and and then her loyalties become misdirected and she seems to be prioritizing Cassio over her husband and, and as you say it leads her to misunderstand things so yeah of course she's not perfect um but it seems for her while all the other characters are deprived of virtue right especially Iago he's almost devoid of any kind of morality or virtue um, Desmona and also Othello are pushed their virtues are pushed to the, the extreme and misdirected yeah. but Amelia seems to be quite Machiavellian herself I think maybe she's learnt it from Iago I don't know what you think of that idea she says for all the world who would not make her husband a cuckold to make him a monarch right, right because she says well once you've cuckolded him and then he's the monarch he can just change the law exactly exactly it's a (laughs) you know what it reminded me of is um those lines that iago gives to rodrigo in act one where he talks about our garden our our wills are kind of like roving through the garden kind of making the garden what we will our bodies are gardens to the which our wills yes yes it struck me that um there was kind of an echo of that in what Amelia was saying. Yes, I would do something wrong in order to gain the world because then when I had the world, I could reshape it as I saw fit. Which, which is, is a perfectly logical argument, but it's wrong. Right, it is. It's so, it's so wrong. And boy, I, to risk overstatement, it's such a demonic view in so many different ways that exactly. I will kind of like take nature and I will reshape it toward the ends that I see fit. It's such a, yeah. ugh. It stood it's out. A frightening prospect. To me, it stood out in distinction to that bit in Matthew 16, um, whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Right, what right. What will a man give in return for his soul? And uh, Amelia in Iago would say, what would it profit a man? everything we'll get everything yeah here's my price <laughs> yeah right in yeah. in Christ is saying just the opposite and I, I mean that is just the way to peace and the other is the way to destruction right. and I do think it's very clever that they mirror each other they um and I would say that kind of Iago has led the way and my hunch in their backstory is that Amelia has 
followed either out of necessity or because that's who she is. Or they kind of, <laughs> there's part of me that there's a little bit of Amelia that I respect that, that conversation that she has with Desdemona, there are aspects of what she says that I'm like, yeah, I can give her that. Yeah. Um, it's, but she's, um, she's a troubled character. She's and a, a troubling character. character. And that bit where Yago vows and swears by the stars and the elements really reinforces the fact that he doesn't believe in any kind of, um, he doesn't believe in a creator God who is outside of the cosmos. So everything is relative and it's all within the cosmos. And so does Amelia. And what we see is that they destroy one another. Amelia, the, the kind of shadow of Iago in terms of her Machiavellian. Yeah, right. The one who brings down Iago. He would have got away with it if she hadn't exposed him at the end. And... Um, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I'm studying judges at the moment. I can't remember which chapter it is, 10 or 11. Um, one of the sons of Gideon stands up and um, speaks out against Abimelech, who's the illegitimate son of Gideon, who's snatched the kingship um, unrighteously. And Gideon's son is a Joash, says, why would you have a bramble rule over you? If you, if you want this bramble to blow you, what will happen is it's going to burn you up with fire and you're going to come back and attack it and you'll destroy each other. And uh, that's sort of what's happening here, that these yeah. characters bring about each other's downfall, sadly. Because, of course, Amelia is then stabbed by Iago at the end as well. Right, right. It's very sad, but they, um, they are brought to justice Um, by their own I, hands. Yeah, and I feel sorry for Amelia because, you know, um, she's obviously not as evil as Yago. Right, right. And like you said, we can see how she's been led astray by him. And then she says this interesting thing. It is their husband's fault if wives do fall. Now, is it really? <laughs> <laughs> or is, is that Amelia? I, I read that and I... I thought, is that Amelia kind of like watching her own back, like yeah. sort of taking her own actions off the, you know, justifying yeah. herself in some way? I'm not really responsible. I'm married to this creep. Mm. He's ultimately responsible. If I fall, it's his fault. Mm. How did you read it? Yeah, I think there's a bit of rhetoric going on there. It's a classic. A bit of, of what? A bit of what? Rhetoric. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This, it's a classic speech against double standards. Reminds me of, of Shylock's speech in The Merchant of Venice. Mm. Not two eyes. If you cut us, do we not bleed? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, is, is this about absolving herself of guilt, uh, making a joke, or does she really believe it? Yeah. I think she might partially believe it. <laughs> <laughs> your eye just, your, your eyebrow just kind of dropped about a quarter of an <laughs> inch, which makes me think that like, maybe you don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it. I think, you know, ultimately we're culpable for our own actions. Yeah. A husband does have a responsibility for his wife, but we're still individually responsible, aren't we? To God in the end. The, can we talk briefly about, before we start to put a bow on this, Sarah Jane, uh, the song 
this beautiful song. I mean, I don't know what it sounds like, but the beautiful words of the song that Desdemona sings, um, it's heartbreaking. It's foreshadowing of, it seems like what is destined to happen. Yeah, it's very sad. Um, why am I thinking of swans? Are there swans in the song? I know there are willows in the song. There yeah, there are willows. There isn't much music in the play at all. And now finally when music returns, it's, it's melancholy. It's, it's really it's, mournful. It's a mournful dirge. And I don't know why I was thinking about swans, but there's some myth, isn't there, that a swan has only one partner in its life. Right. And if it dies, that's it. The other partner spends the rest of its time mourning. Yeah. Um, and I, I was comparing Dystemona to a swan. Maybe that was uh, not, that was isogetical. <laughs> I've gone off on some strange imagination. No, 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 no. There's a, there's a line that Amelia has in response to what she's, to what Desdemona is singing. Um, what did thy song bode, lady? Hark, canst thou hear me? I will play the swan and die in music. There we are. And then she sings what Desdemona has been singing, Willow, Willow, Willow. I'm not going to try to sing, and I'm going to like save our audience from me attempting to sing. Mm. Um, but yeah, there is this allusion to the swan, right, which are one of the animals in the kingdom that seem to have something like a monogamous life partners. And it's that, that term, isn't it? My swan song. Yeah. Which yeah. Your denouement. Yeah. That swan dies in music. Whenever I've seen this scene on the stage, it's been the two women in the chamber. Desdemona's fragile and vulnerable. She's usually in her nightdress by this point. Mm. Amelia has mm. undressed her. And she is usually sort of brushing her hair into the mirror or something. Yeah. It's a very pitiful scene to see these two women. Now, Desmond essentially now is trapped in the chamber. The wedding sheets are on the bed, which are going to become her funeral shroud. And right. everything's staged for the climactic ending. Right. Mm. Do we have to finish it? The play. Yeah. <laughs> just leave them there brushing their hair. <laughs> That's oh. right. Can we just close there, <laughs> drop the curtain right now? Oh, I wish. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's um, interesting about this Shakespeare's source for this. Yeah. The, the story from Chin Theo that I keep going on about. In that play, Othello and Desdemona have lived together happily in Venice for years before they have to go off to war. Mm. And at the end, it is not Othello who is going to kill Desdemona, but it's Iago. And it's mm. really messy. It's, it's hideous and brutal. He beats her with a stocking full of sand. Mm. And then they pull the ceiling down in the bedroom to make it look as if uh, she's been in some terrible architectural accident. So you can see how, how Shakespeare makes it beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. It's so much more destructive to have Othello be the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. It's so much more, it's so much more painful. It's, it's also so much more dramatic. Yeah. Cassio is secondary to this and Iago's, 
um, contract is to kill Cassio, and Othello is the protagonist, is um, he's engaged to kill Desdemona. And in terms of military strategy, that makes so much more sense, which is why yeah. in Act 4, Othello... You know, in Act 4, scene, scene 2, I think it is, he doesn't really mention Cassio at all. And he only mm. talks about Othello, uh, Desdemona's disloyalty. Because what she's done, he says, is 10,000 times worse than what Cassio has done. Yeah, yeah. Because she has the appearance of being divine and beautiful and virtuous. So it's much more dramatic. I think it's, yeah, in terms of dramatic conventions, Shakespeare has really cleaned it up. And, and yes, it up. right. I think it's also interesting, we, we mentioned this earlier, how so often Shakespeare's antagonists drive the action forward. And I think this is a habit of great literature over and over and over. It's the antagonists who push things forward and are protagonists, the kind of heroic characters, the characters that we want to believe in, who will set things right. They are responding to this kind of antithetical action of the, of the antagonist. So, because Close Reads is reading um, the Odyssey, I'll mention it's the suitors that drive the action forward at the beginning of the play. We kind of meet them long before we meet Odysseus. I was just reading, rereading War and Peace by Tolstoy. I was and just rereading War and Peace by Tolstoy, he says, as I do in my couch with my Shakespeare mug. You're living the dream. <laughs> I am going to live in the dream. Um, and it opens with the kind of like Frenchified Russian aristocrats discussing Napoleon. And these Russians who are speaking French, who are kind of in Tolstoy's mind, kind of selling out Russian virtues, they're the ones who open the story. And it's not until a little bit later that Pierre, his hero, steps into this kind of aristocratic ball and begins responding to what these Frenchified Russian dignitaries are kind of pushing Russian toward. And the whole story is this kind of like pulling back of the French influence upon Russia. So over and over, I, I see like really great literature often begins with the antagonist driving us driving us forward. I mean, you can even see perhaps in the Gospels, the temptation happens so early. Herod tempting to... And in Genesis, right, right. In Genesis, the serpent shows up immediately. In the Gospels, Herod is trying to basically obliterate a generation of children before the Messiah can even bring justice to the world. So in all these things, I think it's so interesting that the antagonist is really what drives the action forward. Yeah. In order that things eventually will be brought back around to a state of order. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, my dad explained it to me once as um, that when a potter is trying to make a pot... My dad is a carpenter and a potter, so he does, he does make pots sometimes. He throws pots on the wheel. He says that in order to make a really good pot, you have to 
smash quite a lot of bad ones. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's part of the process of striving towards that perfection. Yeah. It sounds like writing also. You got to write a bunch of bad drafts to get a good draft. You got to write a bunch of bad sentences to get a good sentence. What are we looking for in Act 5, Sarah Jane? We are crashing toward a conclusion of this play. It's gone so fast. I can hardly I know. believe it. I know. I'm really interested in Iago's silence. He refuses to ever speak again. So it would be interesting to know what you think about that. Um, and also what's happening in the rest of the world. Has anything changed as a mm. result of the tragedy mm. of Desdemona and Othello? Or does everyone just kind of go back to Venice and forget about right. it? Right. Does it make any difference? Uh, because that's quite different to the end of, say, Macbeth, where the whole world right. changes as a result of Malcolm's return. Yeah. What about you? I just am eager to get on with um, some glimpse of, of justice for Iago. I'm just, I just am so ready to get there. He's got a long, he's got away with it for so long that I want to see him get what he deserves. It's, it's a very vengeful thought, but I think it's probably hopefully couched in some desire for justice. Yeah. He seems to have, he just seems to be completely inert, Yago, doesn't he? He doesn't seem to have suffered at all in the play. Oh, you don't mean inert. He's, he fails to move. You just mean, you, but, but in, react, internally I mean. he fails to but, move. Yeah. Yes. He doesn't react to external stimuli. So although he's yeah. obviously wounded by um, the possibility that his wife has brought shame upon him, he, isn't, he doesn't really show that. Right. Completely. Right. Um, and even, even when, toward your point, when four three, when he complains to Iago, you've been doing me wrong. You've been doing me wrong. Iago's response is basically he just he just brushes him off. He seems to not care in the least what he's been doing to Rodrigo. He brushes him off and he forces Rodrigo into this position where he says, "No, take me seriously. What you've been doing is wrong. Take me seriously." So to your point, he is empathetically inert that's right he's an intellect devoid of any emotion he's the man yeah. without a chest is c.s lewis yeah 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 um sarah jane let's close up shop um uh, just a little reminder if if you listeners are interested in um continuing to support this podcast and the other podcasts that are part of the suite of podcasts please consider supporting, becoming a Patreon supporter. And you do get swag with it, Sarah Jane. You do get some swag with it. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> uh, the, I think the easiest way to do it is probably to go to Patreon and then search for Close Reads. Easiest way to do it. Um, we will return next week with the climactic act of Othello. And then the week after that, we will return with questions and answers. So if you do have questions, even wanting us to discuss that we've neglected, write them down somewhere and we will post them on the Close Reads Facebook page. 
and we'll make sure that we address them. I'm really looking forward to that. And yeah, I'm I am too. the tension because I'm not on social media. I have no idea what's coming. Oh, so there'll be complete surprises. I can at least get a little bit of a heads up and prepare myself a little bit, but you'll, poor Sarah Jane. Well, I hope the resources that we put out there were helpful or interesting to people and it'd be great to hear what teachers think as well, how they've been teaching this. Yeah. They've got any ideas they want to share. Very good. Okay, thanks, Sarah Jane, and thanks for tuning in to another episode, and we will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.